I think that social media probably had a much bigger impact on cultural transmission in this particular domain than file sharing did. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Can the sharing of drumbeat samples among musicians help us better understand how networks of artists collaborate? Today, in episode 48 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Mason Youngblood from the City University of New York about his research into the cultural transmission of digital music samples through collaborative networks of musicians. Here's Mason Youngblood. Hi, my name is Mason Youngblood. I'm a, a PhD student in animal behavior at the City University of New York. I started out in research in high school and college in South Carolina, doing work on cancer and mice models. When I started applying for graduate school, I was interested in in researching the cultural evolution of birdsong. And over the past few years, my dissertation has kind of split into the cultural evolution of birdsong and some of the physiology behind birdsong and the cultural evolution of music in humans, which is a pretty recent pivot that I've done uh, just in the last couple of years. And it's been really interesting so far. On the surface, Mason's research interest in bird songs might not seem to match up with his examination of humans' cultural evolution of music. But listeners may remember from episode 22 of Parsing Science, when Nicole Crianza also studied both bird songs and cultural evolution, in her case, of Creole languages. This made Ryan and I curious. So we started our conversation by asking Mason how his interest in research into music sampling emerged. I became interested in music sampling as a research model for cultural transmission based on my own experience as an electronic music producer and consumer and seeing how music production communities online share cultural information and how individual music producers incorporate influences from their online interactions into their own music. I kind of had the idea incubating in my head for a while. And then I attended the first conference of the Cultural Evolution Society held in Germany a couple of years ago. That was my first exposure to a lot of these new kinds of methods that have been developed in that field. And I realized that it would be possible to apply those to the practice of music sampling. And music sampling is a great model for cultural evolution and cultural transmission because for a long time, hobbyists and electronic music lovers and hip-hop music lovers have categorized who has used what music samples throughout history on this big database called whosampled.com. So there's a fantastic record that's already publicly available. And then there are other databases that track music releases and you can extract collaboration data from those databases and construct 
a so social network of musical artists um, that you can then use for research. Human culture includes ideas and behaviors, as well as artifacts. Each of these can be learned and transmitted between people, and can either remain static or change over time. Every time you read a book or watch a movie, information is culturally transmitted. In other species, it's clearer that a transmission occurs when a particular behavior is observed. But in humans, our different ways of transmitting culture are basically limitless. The evolution and sharing of culture can get messy, however, as Mason explains. In cultural evolution research, there's been a lot of work on cultural transmission biases, which are cognitive biases that we have that change the probability of which cultural variants we're more likely to adopt, and that also change how we modify cultural variants that we adopt. In humans and in many non-human animal cultural systems, the primary form of bias is either conformity or anti-conformity bias, in which individuals are more or less likely to adopt new cultural variants based on how common they are in the population. Humans are kind of unique in that we depend a lot on both conformity and anti-conformity simultaneously, which is thought to be a driver of cultural diversity. So that's an example of one that changes the probability of cultural variants that individuals adopt from other individuals in the population. But then there are other forms of bias as well, like content bias. So in the case of music sampling, an individual might be more likely to adopt a particular music sample in their own music because of some quality intrinsic to that music sample. And then in particular cultural domains, individuals also change the cultural information that they adopt. For example, in fashion, an individual might initially adopt a particular form of fashion because of conformity or anti-conformity bias, uh, but then they might make changes to their own form of that variant on the individual level. And then that modified version of the variant uh, might be passed on to other people. So those are a few examples of the kinds of cultural transmission biases that people have. In a 2013 editorial for Fact Magazine, Laurent Finitoni contended that the expansion of sampling as a standard practice and the relaxation of unspoken rules continually throw up ethical challenges we should be acknowledging and dealing with, especially if we want sampling to continue to be a driving force for creative good within art, as opposed to something people do to catch shine or because they're too lazy to creatively engage with it. Here's what Mason had to say about the history, role, and ethics of music sampling. Music sampling is the use of a previously recorded piece of audio in a new musical composition. It began in the 1940s in experimental music, where people were working with tape. And it didn't start to become incorporated into 
hip hop and pop music until the late 1970s and the early 80s when samplers became cheaper and more widely available. And once samplers became widely available, it really opened up a world of possibilities, particularly for hip hop and electronic music, because these were two genres where music producers did not have access to the funds required to hire a drummer or a drum section to record on their song. So it kind of democratized music production in that way because it allowed people to incorporate these really rich, organic sounds into their music at a very low cost. And in both hip-hop and electronic music, music producers have historically been drawn to drum breaks. Drum samples in songs where there's either little or no melodic content in the background. So these were really popular on a lot of soul and funk records in the 1960s and early 70s a band would drop out and just kind of allow the drummer to do their thing for a few bars and when hip-hop started djs would find those drum breaks and switch back and forth between them while mcs rapped on them and so once people started making beats for mcs they just kind of naturally started to incorporate those drum breaks they had been using previously into those new songs. The golden age of sampling was really the 80s and 90s. And then in the early to mid 90s, there started to be a lot more copyright lawsuits around sampling. And so it became less and less common in music production. So people still do it. But for popular artists, there are a lot more hoops that you have to jump through with clearing samples with the original artists and stuff like that. Network-based diffusion analysis, or NBDA, is a statistical technique in which the strength of social transmission of information or behavior is inferred from the extent to which its spread follows a social structure or network. The technique is unique in that it takes into account the order and timing of the social transmissions. But how does NBDA work anyway? Mason explains. So diffusion analysis is most commonly used in epidemiology, where researchers track the transmission of disease through human populations. Diseases will transmit between individuals who interact at higher rates than other individuals. So if you take the interactions in a population and transform those into a social network, then you can kind of predict how a disease might spread through that network based on who is connected to who. And these methods started to get incorporated into research on the transmission of culture a couple of decades ago because cultural information also spreads between individuals who 
interact at higher rates. And the particular method that I used called network-based diffusion analysis was actually developed to identify cases of cultural transmission in non-human animals. So if you have the structure of the social network of a population and you have the order in which, um, say, chimpanzees adopt a particular form of tool, then you can see if the spread of the trait was biased by the structure of the social network. And this method has become more and more heavily used in primates and birds and whales. And it hasn't been used in humans because of the fact that we, of course, assume that cultural transmission is present in humans. But what you can do is you can use this method to see if cultural transmission is responsible for the spread of particular traits in humans via particular forms of interaction. And you can see how demographic variables play a role in that process as well. And that's probably the most useful aspect of it in humans. To carry out his research, Mason required a large data set that included information about how many musicians used what samples across a vast number of songs, and how these were shared via musicians' social connections. Ryan and I were interested in hearing more about how he defined the variables of interest and obtained the necessary data. So the variables I looked at were gender, geographic location, popularity on Spotify, and the number of followers on Spotify. And gender and geographic location were taken from the Music Brains API, which is a crowdsourced database. And those records were fairly complete. And then popularity and followers were retrieved from Spotify. The popularity on Spotify is a proprietary index. So unfortunately, they don't provide the details of how that's calculated, uh, but it's driven by streaming count across an artist's entire discography. So, so it's more indicative of long-term uh, popularity compared with the number of followers, which is more indicative of, of an artist's current engagement on that platform. Maybe um, a NWA compared with Kanye West, they've arguably had a similar cultural impact, but they have way fewer followers on Spotify. In the 2001 documentary, Scratch, DJ Shadow describes digging through crates of old records as a humbling experience because you are looking through all these records and it's sort of like a big pile of broken dreams in a way. Almost none of these artists still have a career. This led Doug and I to wonder what Mason's results can tell us about the origins and future of sampling. The results of this study indicate that music samples were being culturally transmitted through collaboration, but of course there had to be a source for the introduction of these music samples into the collaboration network in the first place. And crate digging is and has always been a huge part of both hip hop and electronic music production culture. 
And so at the same time that these music samples were being culturally transmitted through collaboration, there certainly were cases of artists crate digging and discovering samples completely independently of collaboration, which could then be transmitted via collaboration after they were found. The common idiom, birds of a feather flock together, has been in use since the 16th century. In today's social media research, it's common for researchers to examine data for the characteristics of homophily, or the tendency of individuals to associate and bond with others that are like them. Mason talked with us about the patterns of gender homophily found in his analysis. For gender, we found that collaborations were more likely to occur between individuals of the same genders. So both males and females had high levels of homophily. And the probability of cultural transmission was also much higher for female artists as well. One interpretation of that result is that it could just be that before the internet, there were really high levels of homophily among female artists, which indicates that they were preferentially collaborating with other female artists and probably had really strong music production communities based on that. And so that might have led to higher levels of cultural transmission in those communities. The last result relating to gender is that the degree of homophily among females has dramatically decreased since 2000. And the sociology literature indicates that high levels of female homophily are associated with higher levels of gender disparity. So this is an indirect indicator that there might be less gender disparity now than there was before 2000. The results related to female artists need to be interpreted with caution because it is a very low proportion of the data set, which of course is also reflective of the fact that both hip hop and electronic music production communities have not historically had much uh, gender inclusivity. A Kaike Information Criterion, or AIC, is a statistic used for selecting the statistical model that fits a dataset best from among a number of competing models. It was developed in the 1970s as a numeric equivalent to the problem-solving principle referred to as Occam's Razor. All else being equal, the simplest explanation is the best one. AIC favors simpler models with fewer parameters and weighs those against their ability to predict relationships in the data. Mason describes the value that AIC brings to data analysis. The most important purpose of AIC in this study was because of the fact that I had four demographic variables that I could include in all possible combinations into the modeling. I wanted to make sure that I was including the variables that led to the most predictive model. So using AIC, you can run all possible variations of a model and see which combinations of demographic variables best predict your data. And this is particularly important when you have demographic variables that could be highly correlated. So in this case, 
popularity and the number of followers you would expect to be correlated. And so it's helpful to see if it is best to include one over the other or if including both leads to a better model fit. So that's the primary reason why I used it. According to whosampled.com, James Brown is by far the most sampled artist there is. And of course, James Brown remains a tremendously popular artist in his own right. This might lead you to assume that popular music is most likely to be sampled, with the reasoning being that since more people hear it, the odds of popular music getting sampled should be higher. But did Mason's own research support this notion? So both popularity and followership negatively predicted transmission probability. And I think that this has two causes. One, I think, is norms in electronic and hip-hop music production communities. So in hip-hop, using rare music samples that haven't been heavily used in the past is kind of a point of pride. And there's an anecdote I include in the paper about the hip-hop group De La Soul refusing to sample James Brown and George Clinton because of their high popularity. And this also seems to be true in electronic music, where there's a certain amount of prestige associated with being underground. And so, so I think in both of those cases, music producers might be biased towards copying information from less popular artists and less popular collaborators. The other reason why I think it might be the case is that really popular artists often are subject to a lot of restrictions from their labels and managers that might decrease their flexibility in choosing what they sample and what they don't sample. Particularly if an artist is working with a lot of other music producers, it might just be that a producer happens to choose a particular sample and the main artist on the track might not have that much control over it. So I think it's the combination of those two things that probably leads to this observed effect. One hypothesis in Mason's research was that the collaboration probability would be decoupled from geographic proximity after the year 2000. Since there's a good deal of variation in the music industry over time anyway, Doug and I were interested in learning why Mason selected the year 2000 specifically. So around 2000, there were two new technologies that I think really changed music and the cultural transmission of music. And the first is file sharing via platforms like Napster and later on platforms like LimeWire, which are technologies that are really restricted to sharing MP3 files. And I think for music consumers, that probably had a huge impact on the cultural transmission of different music styles and music genres, particularly across international boundaries. So it allowed people to be able to pay more attention to music scenes 
happening in other countries. But I think for music sampling, file sharing alone probably did not have a huge impact besides allowing people to get access to recordings of, of music samples. I think what played a more important role is the development of online music communities on social media platforms, where instead of just getting access to MP3 files, music producers could actually interact with other music producers on blogs or forums, um, enter into collaborations, talk about sampling sources, and things like that. I think that social media probably had a much bigger impact on cultural transmission in this particular domain than file sharing did. But did this move of collaboration networks to the internet alter the cultural transmission of music sampling? Mason shares more of the findings from his research after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Mason Youngblood. I think that's the most interesting result of the paper because music samples continue to be transmitted through collaboration networks, but collaborations are no longer predicted by geography. So there's been a lot of work on the effect of the internet on cultural transmission, and people often think of the internet as a disruptor of cultural transmission. And what this indicates is that the old cultural transmission modes are still there. So people are still transmitting information through collaboration networks within their music communities. It's just that those music communities have moved online. So you might have people in New York collaborating with people in Madrid or people in Tokyo. And they're still transmitting information with those people, even though they aren't geographically close to one another. Mason's research focused on the cultural transmission of music samples among artists from 1984 until 2017. Over this same period, there were parallel evolutions in both what was sampled as well as how it was sampled. So Doug and I wanted to get Mason's take on the evolution of sampling. I think actually these days, the majority of music producers are actually using digital audio sources for music samples. And there are music samples that have emerged more recently that are completely synthesized. In fact, what's really interesting is there are cases of an artist, say, in the jungle or drum and bass music community sampling something like the Amen break, but completely chopping it to pieces and processing it beyond recognition. And then that new version being sampled by a more recent artist years down the road. 
So you have people sampling processed samples of completely analog material, which is really interesting. Uh, but then you also have people sampling drum loops now that are just completely synthesized. And there's actually an entire industry around creating synthesized drum samples for producers, mostly in pop music. It's kind of looked down on in hip-hop and electronic music to pay a company for a drum loop. It's pretty taboo in those music communities, but um, it is now done in pop music circles. And in more popular hip-hop and electronic music production circles, a perfect example is Kanye West, who these days he kind of acts more as an executive producer where he'll have like 20 up and coming music producers in a room and he'll say, all right, I want you all to try and create a baseline that sounds like this. And then he'll describe what kind of sound he wants. And then he'll come back in a couple of hours and see what people came up with and then um, choose the one that he thinks is best. It's a really interesting approach. Mason is both a researcher and a maker of music himself. Before closing out the conversation, Ryan and I wanted to hear more about his music. I've been making music under the moniker Colosum for about five years now. And I would call it experimental club music because it's related to club music stylistically and it takes a lot of influences from club music, but also takes a lot of influences from experimental music, ambient music, noise music, which I think played a huge role in inspiring this project because I was kind of tracking my own integration of influences into my creative process. And and I was interacting with collaborators and I was I was learning from them and they were learning from me and that definitely played a big role in inspiring the project. That was Mason Youngblood, as was the music in this episode. He discussed his article, Cultural Transmission Modes of Music Sampling Traditions Remain Stable Despite Delocalization in the Digital Age, published February 5th, 2019 in PLOS One. You'll find a link to his open access paper at parsingscience.org e48, along with bonus audio and other materials we discussed during the episode. If you enjoy Parsing Science, consider becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And as a sign of our thanks, you'll get access to hours of unreleased audio from all of our episodes so far, as well as the same for all of our future ones. You'll help us continue to bring you the unpublished stories of researchers from around the globe while supporting what we hope is one of your favorite science shows. If you're interested in learning more, head over to parsingscience.org support for more information. Next time, in episode 49 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Carol Graham from the Brookings Institution and the University of Maryland. She'll talk with us about her research into why younger, out-of-work men in the United States are so unhappy compared with other places in the world where their counterparts are arguably struggling much more. So on some of the charts, you'll see prime-age males out of the labor force in the U.S., about the level or even a, a little bit above, but on many others, they're below prime-age males in the Middle East. And that, that for us was pretty remarkable. We hope that you will join us again.